My name is Jeffrey Sidoris, and welcome to another episode of Process Driven. In this episode, I'm sitting down with Sam Faulkner, a photographer from the UK who, for the last five years, has been making portraits of reenactors for a project called Unseen Waterloo. I saw a couple images from the project at this year's Paris Photo LA and was blown away, so I reached out to Sam and asked if we could have a conversation about how the project came about and what inspired him to make the transition from conflict photojournalist to fine art photographer. It's a fantastic conversation. Here we go. Please listen carefully. The, the book's idea really came about from discussing it with the designer. Uh, I was working with a um, very talented uh, uh, English designer called Phil Cleaver, who has made many uh, beautiful uh, books, not just photo books, but uh, just all sorts of kind of illustrated books and also typeset books, um, you know, with some, what do they call it, kind of proper letterpress um, mm, mm-hmm. kind of set books. And he's... Uh, master of typography and um so it's kind of very uh enjoyable experience uh, working with him uh, on the process and, and one of the reasons that we went down the i went down the road of working with phil directly and essentially self-publishing this as opposed to working with a uh, publishers was because i really wanted to control it i wanted to uh on the whole, photographers don't make money from photo books. Uh, you know, it's whatever we like to think say about it. You know, there is a certain they are mostly vanity projects. You know, there are very few photographers uh, that I know of, anyway, uh, publish photo books in order to actually make serious money. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they might cover their costs and they might make a little bit, but. Surely the most important thing for a photographer is to create the book that they want, uh, the, the book that uh, represents they work, their work in the best way possible. Mm-hmm. And that's the way I came into it. I, you know, realizing that actually if I'm never going to make money out of this. Why should I make compromises? Right. Um, You're making the book that you would like to see exactly. of this project. Sure. Exactly. So, you know, if I went to Starbucks, saying they necessarily would have published it but fired and passion or someone like that you know i would have had to have, uh had to have made creative uh compromises in order for them to have been able to publish it the way their business model works mm-hmm. um and which may I, or may not have been in line with your own sure exactly yeah, yeah, but yeah. you know i still wouldn't have made any money out of it so i i for me creatively it was much more interesting to to work with uh, Phil and Patrick, the editor, and um, try and you know build the book from the ground up, you know ourselves, and um, yeah, and just have a product or not even a product, they're kind mm-hmm. of an object that I um, I was incredibly proud of, and I felt really represented the work the best way possible. How how does one go from a from a combat photographer, a combat photojournalist? to uh, a fine art photographer. Can you talk a little bit about that journey and, and kind of what, what inspired that transition? And, and did you know that this was the project 
that you wanted to be your first project, assuming that it was your first project when you when you kind of changed gears? Yeah, in, you know, to, it certainly was the the beginning uh, of that kind of uh, transition or that change. And it was a very conscious change. Um, I came into photography uh, through reportage, documentary photography, and really a kind of desire for adventure. And I think as soon as I left university, within weeks of leaving university, I kind of took myself off to Afghanistan during the period of the Civil War, which was just before the rise of the Taliban and the there was a kind of nasty uh, un, uh, forgotten conflict between various mujahideen factions that had been allies against the Russians and now they were kind of fighting each other um, for what was left of the country um, and I went over there kind of looking for adventure and taking some pictures and that was really what started me as a photographer and as a uh, uh, reportage photographer and really it was became about um, to start with I guess something exciting to do but uh, also trying to tell stories and one of the things that has always been very important for me is um, to create um, to narrow the distance between the person in the picture and the person looking at the picture yeah, I find, you know, which is kind of very old fashioned kind of reportage idea. And one of the things I was, you know, the, the, I don't know whether you've, it's been getting a lot of play over there, but over here there's kind of the, the Bruce Gilden pictures mm, uh, mm -hmm. that's sure. been around. Sure. I find those horrific. And, you know, what part of the thing that I find horrific about them is that. It extends the different uh, the distance between the person in the picture and uh, the person looking at them. You know, it doesn't create uh, any sympathy or empathy between the uh, subject and the viewer at all. Uh, and I I just find that runs very counter to everything that I've wanted to do with my photography. And ha have you wanted to to tell stories in that way since the beginning? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, I think yeah. Uh, you know the um, the my that first trip to Afghanistan, I I shot a project uh, which was uh, very you know naively shot uh, a handful of pictures almost. I think I sh I, I spent almost uh, two weeks in Afghanistan and I came out with I think five rolls of Tri-X in wow. uh, two weeks. In two weeks, and, wow. Yeah. So, uh, and, you know, compared to what you shoot now on digital, it's, you know, quite laughable. And, and were you shooting for someone at this time or was this independent? Not really, no. That was literally just uh, going over there and mm. uh, having, a, having a bit of an adventure. I was over there with my, uh, my friend Phil and, you know, he has since gone on to become a journalist and um, we were just looking for stories and, those pictures did win me an award for young folk journalist, um, the Ian Parry Award, which was a great start to my career and uh, got me kind of talking to the right people very early on. Um, and, you know, so I was kind of had a kind of gilded path to start with. Sure. Uh, and, you know, this was very much what I wanted to do, kind of 
you know, really wanted to try and explore what it was to uh, that connected everyone, you know, whether it was someone in um, a conflict area in Africa or a conflict in um, Afghanistan or maybe South America, and uh, just really try and bring stories that connected with people, whether it's in Europe or in, in America. And um, I guess by the time I started the Waterloo Project in 2009, the a few things were changing, not least the market. Uh, but the market for this sort of photography was disappearing. It was getting the market for and, reportage and re, documentary re, for, for that sort of mm-hmm. yeah for that sort of um, uh, stories that I, I liked shooting was getting it was getting harder and harder to get commissions. Mm-hmm. Um, was was uh, was access getting more difficult as well? Um, no, I actually don't think so. I think you know maybe I was I was probably I wasn't really covering. Um, you know, the Iraqs or the Afghanistans from the sides of the uh, the Allies. I mm-hmm. was, you know, last time I went to Afghanistan, I did the story that I shot was very, um, I think it was 2003, was about the the wedding industry in um, Kabul, which was um, basically a kind of very positive, upbeat story. And I think I shot it at a time where probably at the peak of optimism in Afghanistan, actually, hmm. because it, it all went downhill a bit after then. And, uh, uh, you know, it's still obviously uh, nowhere near as uh, stable as everyone would have hoped it was after, uh, you know, so long. Sure. Um, but at that time, there was uh, every, all the refugee, a lot of the refugees who've been in exile in uh, Iran or in uh, Pakistan were returning. And there was the uh, Taliban were you know, pretty much invisible at the time. And there was very much a um, sense of optimism in Kabul. And there was kind of a building frenzy. And uh, a lot of these businesses that had been suppressed under the Taliban were reopening. So you had the things like the kind of wedding videographer and the beauty parlors that had all been closed. So I was kind of shooting, I shot this uh, story uh, and I had a commission to go off and shoot it, which was about uh, about the whole wedding boom and all the refugees were coming and everyone, obviously during a time of conflict, everyone delays getting married. Uh, and now this was a time of peace and everyone was getting married and suddenly this whole business or this whole industry kind of boomed around, uh, you know, getting married. And, uh, you know, uh, it really caught the moment of uh, op- that moment of optimism in Afghanistan. Um, but I think more than anything, the thing that changed was the market. You know, that's, that was a commission from a magazine and they paid um, expenses and a fee. Now you'd be expected to go off and shoot the story and then, you know, maybe sell it for 1500 quid, uh, you know, $2,000 when you got back, you know, which wow. wouldn't even cover your costs. Sure. The market's just gone. You, the, the magazines don't have the money that they used to have. For the first, when I um, started out, um, kind of 96 or something like that, you know, I was a kid. I was must have been 23 or something like that. Uh, I um, went out to the Sunday Times magazine in London, um, and the picture editor at the time, Aidan Sullivan, took me up there and showed me around. And he pointed out these uh, two massive filing cabinets, which were basically full of stories they'd commissioned, but no, never actually got around to publishing yet. 
And these Wait, were so, so they were paid for? They were paid for. These oh my gosh. They had paid for, and they were prints and transparencies in there, and there were two absolutely full filing cabinets full of wow. things like that. Nowadays, that magazine or any of the other equivalent magazines will not pay for a single picture unless they know exactly which issue it's going in. Wow. Uh, you know, the, the whole, that whole business has changed. And this was about what year that, that you really started I, I guess, to see it change? Yeah. Um, I guess it was in the... I think it was in interesting. It was the kind of time that uh, it was the boom of the internet, the boom of digital photography. Costs of entry were reduced, and um, I guess it was the kind of halfway through the the first decade of the new millennium. Really, you know, mm-hmm. the kind of mm-hmm. two thousand four, uh, two thousand five. But you know, by two thousand and nine, you know, I'd um, we, we just when I started the Waterloo project, you know, I'd changed as well as a photographer. One of the, the key things that was very instrumental in me starting the Unseen Waterloo project was that I actually I made a conscious decision to actually just throw away everything that I've been doing before. So, uh, well, I don't mean throw it away. I just mean just reappraise everything that I've been doing before. So instead of shooting with a small handheld Leica on this, I was shooting with a Hasselblad with a you know massive phase one back tethered to a computer cameras on a tripod and I'm shooting it uh lighting the situation whereas normally everything that I'd ever shoot was available light um I was shooting something that was essentially artificial in you know a reenactment as opposed to what was always real and in front of me you know previously everything that I'd been photographing it was much more about kind of capturing moments and just being present and being a witness to what was going on. Whereas this was doing photographing something that essentially wasn't there, which was this 200 year old battle. So just a, a um, massive shift. Yeah. And that, that's really what I very, you know, I really thought, okay, one of the things that I was very interested in was, or I became more and more interested in was actually photography. The idea of photography, mm-hmm. not just the kind of, uh, you know, uh, the technique of photography, but the idea of what photography is about and the, uh, the role that photography plays uh, in kind of uh, our visual understanding of uh, situations or uh, issue or uh, an event. So, and the more I explored Waterloo, uh, the more interest I became in the role of how photography had changed war photography photography had changed the way we remember conflict and the uh, impact that photography had on the public's um, understanding of what it's like to be in a war zone. Mm -hmm. Um, And Waterloo was being the last uh, conflict before, before the invention of photography, we very much remember it as the conflict between Napoleon and Wellington, the two great generals who we've seen, you know, beautiful uh, portraits of. You have the Goya portrait of Wellington, and you have David's of uh, Napoleon, and you know some of the greatest artists in the world um, in history have you know painted these two guys. Um, but what we never had were actual any pictures of the the fighting men, the men that 
died that day. Sure. 200,000 men who were on that field. And this, this is a small battlefield. This is two and a half, about two and a half miles by two and a half miles. Wow. And even after uh, two world wars and a hundred years later, uh, 200 years later, we've never had so many uh, horses and men fighting in such a confined space. So even the great, for example, the great uh, offenses of, offensives of the um, First World War, like the Somme, that was over a 14-mile front. Right, right. So, you know... And this is might, two and a half miles on a side. Yeah, two wow. and a half miles. Wow. So it's uh, incredibly confined. Um, and by the end of the day, the you know, it's a battlefield with littered, littered and, you know, deep with bodies. But, um, uh, sorry, I'm getting a little bit off. Uh, so no, anyway, okay. I, was kind of, I was interested in uh, how uh, photography changed the way we remember conflict. Because by the time we get to the First World War, which was 100 years uh, exactly after Waterloo, the First World War is very much remembered in the terms of the men who fought, uh, the kind of courageous Tommy and, you know, for the British guys uh, who were in the trenches. And it's very much seen from the point of view of the individuals fighting it rather than the big generals and the, the officers who were, to some extent, uh, considered buffoons because they never, uh, you know, they caused so much needless slaughter and had very find imaginative ideas about how the uh, the conflict should be fought. So over that hundred years, what we had was um, a kind of democratization of um, imagery. We uh, had images of all the men instead of just the generals. But we also had a, de a democratization of memory in the sense that we are remembering the individuals instead of just the officers. Mm -hmm. uh, so I was kind of quite interested in whether those two things were related, whether we are, um, whether we remember conflicts differently once we can see the actual people who fought in them. When you went into this, did you did you go into this project knowing that it would take five years to complete? Did you plan for that kind of commitment? No, absolutely not. The, the very first time I went off to shooting, I went there kind of, expecting just wanting to shoot something in a very different way you know as i said just think about photography in a different way and approach photography and you using different techniques different um ideas but essentially you know obviously with the same eye because that's the one thing that you know i can't do anything about sure that's um, kind of the unifying field between the exactly. two sure so um but and i you know, did that first weekend and very, very soon afterwards, as soon as I got back and I started looking at the pictures, I was compelled, you know, I need to carry on doing this because mm -hmm. actually, you know, I've only got another five years until the anniversary and uh, there's something here, you know, there's, I, I immediately felt, I, I wasn't quite sure what it was yet. And it, you know, it has taken me a while to really kind of come to distill the essence of what, you know, I think uh, drew me towards it. I just saw that there was something interesting and something that uh, was um, intriguing about these images. And so, you know, I just straight away said, okay, that's it. You know, my next, uh, uh, my next five years, I'm going to be 
be working on this thing. And, you know, it's not a massive commitment. It's one weekend a year over five years. So um, it's overall, the, the, the whole project was shot in 10 days, but, you know, over a five year period. You know, whereas obviously some, some photo projects are shot much more intensively than that over, you know, even longer periods. But um, so, but obviously over that time, it gave me a lot of opportunity to kind of think about what I was doing, uh, constantly reappraise the images and kind of um, understand what I was photographing. Because I think certainly at the beginning, you know, I thought, okay, I'm going to go off and shoot this thing, which is essentially artificial. And I didn't want to, sh I didn't want to shoot it in a reportage way. You know, I definitely didn't want to do that because, you know, it would be really bogus to try and shoot uh, a battle, you know, a battle reenactment. So the idea was to kind of try and create isolated portraits that you can't see that they're actually shot on the battlefield of Waterloo. But hopefully, once you look at their faces and look at how they're carrying themselves, it becomes obvious that they couldn't have been shot anywhere else. Mm -hmm. You know, if you look closely on around uh, on some of the faces, you can see the black on their lips, and this is from um, tearing the cartridges that have the powder in. Oh, sure, the, uh, the black powder. Poured, wow. Yeah, the black powder which they pour down the muzzle, and so this is something that the the actual soldiers at Waterloo would have had too. You know, they would have had these very black lips. And these guys, are um, the reenactors are sleeping out in bivouacs for the weekend. So they're not looking clean shaven. They're not looking pristine. And one of, you know, I didn't want them to look perfect. I didn't want them to look like parade ground soldiers. Sure, sure. You know, the idea was, because I, I, I feel the work is about the soldiers of Waterloo, not about reenactors. What What were some of the criteria that you used to select not only who to photograph but when to photograph them? One of the the most important things was trying to get a uh, kind of an array of different uniforms because the other thing about Waterloo, which is interesting and probably actually makes it a more interesting exhibition than pretty much any other doing it about any other battle is the array of uniforms mm -hmm. because it really absolutely was the kind of peak of military fashion. A uh, hundred years later, again, at the, the first world war, um, most of the uniforms would have been drab and khaki and, or, you know, later camouflage. And there was very much a sense that everyone had to kind of blend in, you know, as a unit, but also, you know, to their surrounding. Right. Whereas at Waterloo, um, the, the idea was that your regiment had to stand out and it didn't matter that, you know, you're wearing red because to be honest, you were only ever likely to be killed by someone who's a few meters away anyway. Right. Uh, so you didn't need to hide into, uh, or blend into the background because by the time you got that close, camouflage is no good anyway sure so um it the the whole rise of camouflage and uh khaki is to do with the mechanization of war how the killing distance um of the weapons extended and therefore if you managed to conceal your position you were able to uh maybe survive a bit longer um so that's you know one of the other things about 
Waterloo is just the, these incredibly beautiful uniforms. And, you know, that's an absolute blessing that these these reenactors spend so much time and money making the uniforms so um and are, are they each responsible for their own uniforms yeah absolutely. wow that's right so um you'd be in a regiment and you'd they'd study them and i guess this is one of the uh incredible things about the internet uh so in uh you know another thing that perhaps you'd never even thought about is the way uh these guys are able to share information now in a way that perhaps they you know wouldn't have been able to do before so uh and the research that they they put into them, and um, you get you are spread out uh, geographically in a way that perhaps they never would have been before. Um, and they can obviously arrange much bigger kind of uh, battles and coordination and things like that. So it's it's kind of weird that this uh, the kind of modern technology is really fed into uh, its. Uh, or very much helped keep alive this historical reenacting thing. And and uh, how how many people are we talking about? How many soldiers are we talking about in in these battles? This year um, was a particularly big one. Uh, I didn't photograph this year because my project finished uh, you know before the anniversary. Um, but this year I think they had five thousand. And normally five thousand. Wow. Five thousand. Yeah. Normally it's a, uh, fewer than that. But because this year was the big 200, they mm-hmm. uh, they uh, decided to, uh, you know, everyone came out to woodwork to have a go. Do you think this had to be, um, I guess, thematically, did this have to be the, the first sort of large-scale project like this that you took on, somehow tying to this sort of previous life of, of mm. reportage and, and combat and conflict? I don't think it had to be. I think uh, I think it makes sense that it is mm-hmm. um, because going back to what I was saying earlier about how um, the motivation for my photography has always been about creating uh, a connection between the viewer and the subject mm-hmm. and kind of narrowing that distance. Uh, I think this work does that too. I think uh, you look at these pictures and hopefully from that you would have had a you will take away a greater understanding of what it might have been like to be a 19th century uh, soldier or to have been at the battle of waterloo or to um well you know maybe to reenact but mm-hmm. you know, hopefully it's slightly more profound than that um, were they receptive to you from the beginning this is interesting. Uh, yes, they were. They, were, I think, there was a, a a little bit of a suspicion because most of the photographers that turn up to these things, they want a very kind of almost cliched picture of like uh, you know one of these guys in their nineteenth century uniform drinking a can of coke or Napoleon on a mobile phone or uh, <laughs> you know uh, Wellington, you know um, I don't know you know playing with an ipad or something right, you know right, right. Uh, you know what i mean they, they they really the kind of thing newspapers you know lap up and, sure you know they uh you know just that juxtaposition of uh you know modern and uh, old and you know it's you know just any easy smile isn't it for um uh you know uh a paper after a reenactment sure and, uh, things like that and and obviously i wasn't interested in that and uh, you know convincing 
convincing them that it, in fact I wanted to do it straight, uh, and I you know wanted to do it uh, very high end, and you know it's very hard for them to kind of understand exactly what I was doing to start with. After a couple of years, we did a we printed off a little blurb book so we could show show them um, you know the work in progress where we got so far, and you know that really helped, and also we kind of sent out. Um, out of camera postcards to everyone after we'd done it. So they can, you know, the word got around. And uh, by the time we'd done it a few years, you know, people were expecting me and, uh, uh, you know, greeting me as an old friend, mm-hmm. shall we say. Mm-hmm. And they, you know, they were, I think there's one chap who, who managed to get his self photographed every year. So oh, really? In, times, in the same yeah. uniform or would they switch uh, no, uniforms? Yeah, he, uh, he managed to, uh, I think he had. Three or four different uniforms. Sneaky. Yeah. yeah. So. <laughs> it's like, hey, I've seen you. <laughs> no, I think the first time, the first time I, um, I, I did it, I thought, oh, you cheeky bastard, I did. <laughs> and it, it was funny because actually, he was one of the very first like the ones I, uh, uh, I shot. And actually, the it is that first image of him that you know is the the keeper. Mm. Uh, none of the other ones actually made it into the edit. Um, of the book or the exhibition, but that that first one is actually one of the strongest ones, and pr- was probably one of the uh, the images that actually uh, worked so well from that first shoot that really kind of motivated me to uh, to continue. So, mm-hmm. uh, despite having another four goes at it, I never improved on that first one. How how did the idea of the deliverables evolve over the five years? Did you did you know going in that you wanted to do books and prints? Or did one or the other emerge kind of as the project went on? No, I think, um, um, really, I think I, I must have shot three, at least three years before uh, I'd even started thinking about what I was going to do with it hmm. uh, or, you know, where it was going to end up. You just knew uh, you wanted the photographs. I knew I wanted the photographs and I knew that I just needed to keep going and... Then, you know, as time got closer, I would have a body of work which I could then kind of start thinking what to do with. Mm-hmm. Um, that sounds like that's something in and of itself that was quite different from your sort of previous. Yeah, no, exactly. I'll tell you, one of the other things that uh, is what you know very different about this is actually finishing it. Um, one of uh, as a photographer, um, I. I'm, you know, I just want to keep going on things. You know, I find it very hard to say that's it, that project's over. Unless, you know, it's an assignment. I go away for two weeks and I shoot and they come back and sure. then it's over. But personal projects. Um, knowing when to quit. Are, yeah, knowing when to quit and knowing when to say that's done or, you know, uh, let's move on to something else. Or there's always something else that I want to add or something else I think I can do the thing about this one because we had this uh, anniversary deadline I knew it had to be done by then um, and therefore you know the end was always in sight right it was always in the calendar um, and to be honest I think that was uh, very important um, because I think if it had been another 15 years to the anniversary w- would I, you still be you know, shooting Probably, probably would, you know. Out there every year. Just slog on for another few more years. But, um, 
uh, yeah, so it was just enough distance away for it to be, uh, you know, an achievable uh, goal and also significant enough for it to actually have created a body of work that's, you know, not, you know, disposable. Mm -hmm. um, but coming back to something else we were talking about, which was when we discussed the deliverables, uh, I, I think the what suddenly changed it from this becoming um, a you know a project which was ongoing to something that really was going to be the big you know the big art project for my career or the first big art project mm -hmm, for my career mm -hmm. was um, hopefully not the showed, last yeah well hopefully not yeah. <laughs> I wanted to rephrase that to make it uh, <laughs> more and I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> um, was when I showed it to Patrick Kinmonth. Uh, Patrick Kinmonth um, is this incredibly talented kind of creative director, director of operas, set designer. Mm. And I met him um, years ago uh, when I was working uh, alongside Mario Testino as. Um, uh, he, he he and Mario go back years and years. They worked for Vogue uh, on Vogue together during the eighties, and um, uh, they're kind of lifelong friends. And uh, I was doing uh, various bits with Mario, following on from a commission I had, which was to do a, a GQ magazine, which was kind of to shoot a project about the kind of world's most glamorous fashion photographer. Hmm. And I met Patrick, and uh, you know we we. You know, stayed in touch and were friends. And although you know we hadn't spoken for ages, and then I suddenly called him out of the blue and said, "Look, I really want to show you this work." And um, he, you know, seemed to fall in love with it straight away and had wonderfully high ambitions for it immediately. You know, ambitions beyond my wildest dreams, really. And uh, I think it was his belief and support for the project that really uh, enabled me to kind of think. Yes, you know, let's you know do this book the way I want to do this book. Let's you know kind of go for this uh, exhibition at Sunset House and uh, everything else that followed on. Fascinating that that he his was the name that you pulled out after mm. not speaking for so long. Yeah. Yes, it was just uh, it was just you know suddenly that. Uh, um, my wife Sabina used to be Mario's uh, producer, and you know we were just talking about this um, one night, and she said, oh, "You've got to give Patrick a call." Hmm. And uh, you know, from that, you know, it, it absolutely took off. Now, how many how many prints are you doing? Actually, bigger question: how many how many final photographs did you end up with versus how many did you take over the five year period? Um, I think we shot about between 250 to 300 individual kind of um, individuals or kind of, yeah, individuals. So mm -hmm. either on horseback or, uh, or standing. So, yeah. And so what did you end up with as, as, as uh, final prints? How many? In the exhibition, there are 71. And I think in the book, there's about 110. Mm -hmm. I can't remember I shot off the top of my head, but yeah. I think it's about 110. So, yeah, it's um, some of the choosing choosing them was um, some of them were obviously self-selecting. You know, they you know there are a lot of 
ones that were just oh definite 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 that's the one yeah, and then sure. you know we start thinking well you know do we have that uniform and then you know then i have to get into the whole historical research bit you know it's like oh that's a really nice picture you know and then you check and ah oh, that's a russian regiment and the russians weren't there you know because often <laughs> at these uh, reenactments you know they're kind of saying napoleonic reenactments sure you know it's supposed to be reenacting the battle of waterloo but you know this liberties are taken up. yeah exactly this guy turns up in a, a russian uniform of the period right he was fighting on the essentially the right side but uh it was like I, at the time i took the picture you know i wasn't aware and and you go back and check it, and it's like, damn, can't use that one. Right, right, um, right, right. So, and then you kind of go through and you think, well, that guy doesn't look believable. You know, he doesn't. Uh, In context, he, you mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, or he, you know, he he's not inhabiting that uniform. You know, he's not wearing the uniform in a way that someone who's been marching for days, sleeping in his uniform, and you know, fighting in his uniform and getting drenched in rain and everything else. I don't know. It just doesn't look right. It just, he's not inhabiting mm -hmm. that, that uniform. It feels like more of a costume, yeah, maybe. Exactly, yeah, exactly. So it feels like a costume rather than something he was, uh, you know, living in. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, those guys were out. And, uh, and then, yeah, then, you know, you just need to try and think, oh, and, you know, and we got sponsorship from the Dutch embassy, so we've got to make sure that we've got enough Dutch guys in there and right. things like that. <laughs> so, yeah. Where did the idea for the uh, the Thin Red Line version of the book come? And and was there was there always the intention to use? Because you guys used the actual wool from the actual mill that the soldiers were were clad yeah. in yes this was you know patrick kinmont you know who i just mentioned uh is an exceptionally creative uh guy and really has this enormous vision and within an hour of me showing him the, the initial work which was years ago he said wouldn't it be great if we had this this fabric behind this hainsworth fabric and we could use that incorporate it into the show and, you know, I was like, yeah, okay. I'll, you know, <laughs> at, at that point, I wasn't really buying it. It doesn't all. sound like, like you were all that sold yeah, on Yeah, I was like, I was like, well, I can't really see, you know, it's a photo exhibition, you know, right. what's all this fabric got to do with anything? And, you know, and I, you know, I, he just, you know, it, it was his uh, gigantic vision that, you know, just uh, meant that this idea that he had, you know, years ago suddenly, well, you know, ultimately it came to fruition in, you know, probably exactly the same way he, you know, he thought of it in that mm -hmm. instant. And, and uh, because we got Hainsworth on, um, involved and they were, they were the ones that were making the fabric that were the British, uh, that very red, bright red fabric that the British uh, infantry wore at Waterloo wow. uh, was made at the same mill um, as it is still made today up in West Yorkshire. And, while some of the processes have changed, essentially it is the same fabric. Wow. Did, did you get a chance to go to the mill? Oh, yeah, I yeah. did. I, I went up there and we shot a little video of uh, them making the fabric for the exhibition because they, I think they gave us something like 200 meters oh my of gosh. this fabric for the exhibition. And, wow. Um, the, with 
um, covered all the walls in um, this, uh, this, you know, and it's incredibly rich, dense fabric. And it just, the color is amazing. It just jumps out. Mm -hmm. um, and because the images are so dark and uh, it, it, it just really works incredibly well. Um, and so we went, we went up there and watched them making the fabric and it was uh, incredibly uh, uh, exciting just to see this stuff come off that was being made specially for us and it was all, you know, a wonderful, uh, wonderful process. And we decided that we'd like to make this ultimate edition of the book, which um, we were kind of all the way down the line, you know, kind of we were thinking of what materials we could use and, you know, we were talking about leather and uh, things like that. And it, it then just became obvious, actually, you know, mm -hmm. let's use this uh, thin red liner, uh, you know, this Hainsworth fabric and um, have it embroidered in silver. So uh, the, the map design that we have on the cover of the 1815 edition is transferred or translated into silver embroidery for the um, thin red line edition. And, uh, it, you know, the embroidery was very much playing on the ideas of, you know, the embroidery on the uniforms and uh, the kind of that, that regalia that the guys in the pictures are wearing. Sure. Uh, yeah. So it's, it's, it's a beautiful kind of touch. Continuing that. Yeah. yeah. It's beautiful. I mean, it, you, you, you talked about, uh, might have even been before we started recording, but the importance of this as an object, and, oh, and yeah. you've you've really succeeded in this. I mean, obviously, I haven't seen that particular version of it, but in 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 seeing the copy that I have and in seeing the photographs of of uh, that version of the book, I can only imagine just how amazed you must have been seeing that first one out of the box. Yeah, no, it's it's absolutely uh, yeah, no, it's just incredible, and the the amount of skill going involved involved in it as well, because obviously you know we've we've made taken the pictures and we've had it designed, and then it's been printed over in Italy, you know, by the, the wonderful uh, uh, photographic printers in Verona, and then we have these uh, what they call book blocks, which are the insides of the books. And then we have to kind of send that over to the book binders. But before that, we have to get the panels embroidered. And that's um, the, one of the embroiderers that we're using in London are the guys that do stuff for the Royal family and they wow. do stuff for the, the military and they, you know, really top of the game stuff. And uh, so we've got some, it, it's just wonderful to be working with craftsmen as well, right. because it, it's not just, you know, making the book and, you know, just uh, a kind of, uh, what you call it, a machine just churning it out. Sure. Um, it is, you know, it, it, once it's been printed, it's then going off to Craftsman to actually be finished. And right. uh, it kind of, they do the embroidery and then that's sent over to the book binders and then he has to, they have to send it back to the embroiderers for finishing. And, uh, you know, there's a huge amount of work involved and uh, uh, it's, it's an expensive book, but, uh, Hopefully, you know, it's uh, everyone who's, who's got one uh, kind of feels it's worthwhile. Well, it, it's such a brilliant idea that the photographs are not the end of the process. They're really just mm. the beginning of it. You know, sort of your, your work on this edition 
is is largely done. But then, as you just said, it's still got this whole other series of steps to go through before the object is complete. And that must be just immensely satisfying to see that. Yes. Yeah, no, it is. And uh, it's, uh, it's not <laughs> being without problems, you know, dealing with uh, crossmen, you get delays and sure. bottlenecks and things like that. So it's not being with, you know, uh, an unstressful process, but um, it's, uh, you know, it is uh, is incredibly rewarding to actually see this, uh, you know, really really fine fine book right. uh, they're producing at the end. And what what versions of the prints are there available? Are, are there different sizes? Or is there only yeah, one well, size? Yeah, basically we are. There are two sizes, which are the the life size uh, version, which we uh, is the one that's in the gallery. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, sorry, in Somerset House. Uh, the exhibition in London, and then we do a smaller size, which I think is mm, roughly equivalent to A2 size. So the the life size version must have been what I saw at Paris Photo, right? Yes, that's right. And that was, uh, I think, when we first spoke, you had mentioned that that was the first time that any of the work had been seen yeah, publicly. No, absolutely. So Hamilton's Gallery in London are representing the work, and they are um, that uh, they took it to LA, which I think was what end of april mm-hmm. is that right yep. so it's uh that was the first reveal of any of the work um which uh kind of I, you know they're doing a fantastic job with it and uh you know i'm really uh, very excited to have such a kind of fabulous I, gallery uh, sam it was incredible i mean it was you you walk out of this this space and round this corner and there are two of them and they're yeah. you're struck by it, one just the enormity of them but but two, the the denseness of color in the coats in the uniforms—they're yeah, just but, uh, amazingly rich. And this is another thing that I could bore on about for ages and ages. <laughs> getting getting these prints right was hard. We um you know London has some of the best photographic printers you know in Europe if not the world, and you know they really are you know, some great uh, great prints over here. But I was struggling to to find some. The uh, printers who could really nail this. Uh, I tried, you know, four or five different printers, and some were some were getting scuffing in the black because there's so much dense black ink on there, and um, there was something that was happening in the machine that was just touching the paper, and you just mm. get this mark in the black. Because I decided on this paper uh, ages ago, and you know, it was very much my vision that. Uh, Certainly, the ex- I guess the prints you saw weren't done quite like this. But the, at the exhibition in London, we've uh, we've framed them, but without glass, because what I wanted to do was I wanted to um, minimise the amount of uh, barriers between the viewer mm, and mm-hmm. the subject. So you really are looking straight into um, the eyes of this soldier, wow. who's life size, right next uh, right next to you. Um, and, and you're no seeing the surface of the paper. Exactly. And you're wow. seeing the surface of the paper. And this is the kind of German etching by Hannah Müller, mm-hmm. which is um, a really very, very matte, um, kind of slightly textured paper. And it really takes the, the ink. Uh, the blacks are just so dark and charcoal. Uh, you know, we, um, something that uh, I could... I, I, we tried to, uh, lots of other different processes, but it was the depth of this black that right. really just uh, had this kind of 
infinite quality to it that uh, that we just loved. The change in the gear, the change in the process, the change in approach, how has it affected your work moving forward, both technically and aesthetically? Do you, do you see this as having a, a profound effect on everything that you shoot from here on out? Or... Is it more of a one-off, like you wouldn't want to do this this level of, of, of project or this type of project again? No, I, I definitely don't think that's the case. Uh, I definitely do want to do another project. Like mm-hmm. I think this is definitely... Um, I, the whole the whole process has been so fascinating, even you know from the first shoot until the exhibition opening has just been an absolute uh, blast. I've enjoyed every minute of it. And you know having learned so much on this it would be absolute waste not to uh not to try and do it again because sure surely it must be one of the hardest ones to do the first one you know sure. five-year project um and you know exhibition and a book and everything else that we've done is uh you know finding a, a fantastic gallery like hamilton's you know that's you know we we work very hard to to get all those things in place and uh you know i've got a couple of ideas of things that i want to do um which i think are the continuation of this i think um it would have you seeing this work uh will inform you know the next work will be informed by this work and i think it would have been a bit bit of a jump just to do you know, gone from the reportage to the next project. Mm-hmm. So this is a very, very important e- intermediary stage that uh, I think has helped me learn a huge amount. You know, and I think one of the other things that this project's really got me thinking about is photography. And, you know, I, you know I'm interested in, you know, I've never been interested in shooting anything other than re- people really before. You know, I've done, you know, taken a few still lives uh, sorry a few landscapes and things like that you know which has always been part of you know bigger projects but, right um, never a focal point yeah never really a focal point but you know, now i'm interested in perhaps exploring those things i don't think that's where my next uh, project lies at all but i think what this pro- uh, process has um taught me is that actually it's creatively really important just to kind of try try something new just do something completely different approach something you know in a, a brand new way and mm-hmm. just try and uh make it work don't think okay i'm a documentary and you know okay I need what am i allowed to do that. yeah exactly <laughs> and uh you know i'm really interested in just trying a few things out playing mm-hmm. around and you know as I, I mentioned before we started recording uh, you know, I love taking photographs, right. and uh, it's. Con- I think more than anything, it's um, uh, reinforced that that actually, you know, this is something that you know I love doing, and I just want to carry on doing it in any way that I can, whether it is um, reportage, documentary, or this uh, kind of more conceived. Uh, art project or mm-hmm. something else you know, just taking pictures is uh, fascinates me and it's I, I guess I'm becoming more fascinated by the process of taking pictures and you know what the pictures mean rather than just 
being caught up in the moment and the adventure of taking pictures. You know, mm-hmm. it's very mm-hmm. much... Uh, M- much more the architect of the image now. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Making the yeah. images, sure. Mm-hmm. Do, yeah. do you see maybe a redefinition of the type of photographer you are overall, or will you still continue to do reportage or some of the things that you've know. done in I the just, past? I, I don't know. I, 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 this is one of the things that I've constantly struggled with in my own mind. I've probably spent far too long trying to thinking about this, whether it's better to be a kind of very specific kind of photographer. Mm-hmm. So, you know, uh, you are the guy that shoots those incredibly you know, lit studio portraits of animals or something right, like that. Right. You know, or whether you are more like a Nada Fikanda character who, you know, does beautiful portraits, but also does, you know, uh, great advertising work and, you know, these uh, artistic landscape pictures. Um, just, I, you know, whether it's better to pigeonhole yourself and have something really that people can come to you and think, Every time they think of that kind of picture, your name springs up. Sure. Or whether, you know, it's, I, you know, I think I've answered the question for myself now, which is actually, you know, I, I don't want to be an inner picture at all. I want to just shoot pictures and I want to be a photographer. I think that's what this project is for me. Yeah. I'd like to thank Sam for being so generous with his time. Uh, if you would like to see images from the Unseen Waterloo Project, Head over to unseenwaterloo.co.uk, where you can also purchase a copy of the book, which is fantastic, uh, as well as postcards and a great set of posters. Uh, You'll find more work by Sam Faulkner, including his gorgeous Eagle Hunters project, on his website at samfaulkner.co.uk. You can follow Sam on Twitter and Instagram at faulknerphotog, that's F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R-P-H-O-T-O-G. Uh, Links to some of the people that we talked about in this episode can be found in the show notes at jeffreysadoras.com. And if you enjoyed the conversation, please share it and subscribe either on iTunes or in your favorite podcast app. And if you know someone interesting you think I should talk to, you can find me on Twitter or Instagram at jeffreysadoras. Thanks so much for listening. I appreciate you being here and I will see you next time.